You know, I'm outside here and you, you guys are gonna hear a little bit of background noise, but what you're also gonna hear is, uh, you're gonna hear some salmon knowledge today from Jared Higginbotham. Jared, thank you so much for being on the Salmon Trout Steelheader podcast today. Yeah, man, no problem. Happy to be here. So Jared, the reason I uh, um, snatched you up here is, um, I just would like to pick your brain. You've uh, got a lot of experience fishing over the years uh, yourself, but not only that, fishing with a lot of talented anglers over that time as well, working uh, with Yakima Bait Company for how many years? Uh, Nine years in August, man. Cool, man. And then before that, you know, working in outdoors and fishing in general. Yeah, I managed a retail store, hunting and fishing store called Hammers Outdoor World in Yakima, Washington for uh, eight, eight and a half years previous to going to Yakima Bait. So it's kind of like going to college before, you know, I went to grad school, right? For sure. And uh, the reason that kind of matters is because uh, Jared has been involved in so many different, I guess, kind of product development things that have really kind of dialed you into a very being a very specific fisherman yeah it's really unique you know i mean i've always been one of those detail oriented fishermen Mm -hmm. and um really paid attention just much more than all my other friends right like there was always a reason why we weren't or why we were catching fish right and um when i went to work for yakima and i got to work with buzz right like I learned all those whys, right? Because yeah. he helped curb my learning uh, for, you know, about 30 years advanced of what it would have taken me to learn that. And it was all free knowledge, right? Like, he, wow. he wanted me yeah. to learn this. So, I mean, he's been one of my idols since I was a little kid. And so to have that type of person pass that knowledge on to you um, is just one of those special, special deals. So uh, you've always been a very detail-oriented angler. And one thing I noticed that uh, when I was fishing with you, we had a cool video that we put out, sockeye fishing with mm-hmm. Bill Herzog yeah. and Dave Vetter, Nick Amato, Craig Mitchell. Mm-hmm. That was a great time. And uh, you, like, stuff your tuna every every pass. Yeah, man, I'm, Keep I'm fresh, just really picky. You know, salmon and steelhead, are, you know, their, their entire life is basically based on some sort of scent and sight, right? And so... Um, you know, sight, scent, and sound is what, you know, they base their entire feeding process off of, really. And so, you know, it's like, it's just like yourself going to a pizza parlor, right? If yeah. you can smell it, you can almost float the whole way in, right? Good. So, um, you know, it's like those cartoons you used to watch. And you watch that cartoon float up off, and it smells its way all the way into the kitchen, boom, and lands on the food. It's kind of the same way I look at it for salmon, right? I mean, and over time, you know, that gets watered down. And like anything else, it gets watered down, whether it's food or a drink, right? It loses that potency of... Um, that premium flavor that you're looking for. And so I mm-hmm. kind of feel it's the same way for a salmon, right? Because their, their, scent, their, their, their sense of smell is, you know, so much greater than ours, right? That it's got to affect that bait. And it's just, maybe it's in my head, maybe it's not. But I'm usually very, very lucky or successful, however you want to call that. Um, and I just take the time. And I think that preparation and that uh, attention to detail is really what makes a difference um, in putting maybe one fish or ten fish in the boat. For sure. Yeah. So, um now, one one thing that I kind of want to discuss with you uh, is not necessarily location specific. We were we were fishing down in Astoria uh-huh. today, but in general, if you were going to approach kind of the estuary environment, um, do you know what the water temperature was today? So the water temp when the uh, tide was ebbing out, when the Columbia was pushing it, was like sixty six five, and then when the tide was pushing in, when it was flooding, it dropped down to sixty one two, is the lowest we got it. And I personally, you know, earlier in the year when we came here on the first, the temp was seventy degrees 
right? And then when the, when the tide would flood, it would get down to 68, 67. And those 68 to 67s were the water temperatures we were actually chasing. We would actually run, you know, when the tide was flooding, we'd run towards the ocean until we hit that temp, and that's where we would start fishing because that's when we were getting bit. We weren't getting bit much in the 70, but we were getting bit in the 68. Now, would you say that's a pretty consistent temperature to chase for salmon? You know, I still think it's really, it's high, but anytime you can find those cooler water breaks mm -hmm. um, for salmon fishing, when you're fishing, especially a big fishery like this, and, and when they exchange tidal water, salt water, fresh water, I think that it can definitely help you hone in because it is such a big area to fish, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, for a new beginner to walk out here, it's like, how do you break this down, right? Like, how, how would you break down 40 square miles with thousands of boats, right? And, um, you know, one thing you can definitely look at is water temp, right? Like, water temp it will definitely help you in some of those situations as far as kind of narrow that down and maybe find those narrow channels of water that are uh, pushing or pulling that uh, might give you a better opportunity to get those bites. Okay, so now in that case or in the fall, if you could choose from any water temperature to chase fall fish at uh, for and, and any temperature swing on that tide, what would what would be ideal for you? I mean, really, dude, as long as it stays under that 67 degrees-ish, man, mm -hmm. it's not bad. Salmon, once it gets above that 65, they, from what I've found, man, they don't generally like it as much, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but under that is generally good. They'll react better. It's like right now, I mean, a lot of my buddies are fishing in the upper Columbia. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my, my son was at Drano today, and he's marking tons of fish on the deck, right? And they will not snap. And the reason is because it's about 70, 73 degrees. Wow. And mm -hmm. so they become sluggish, right? They just don't react the same way. They don't act the same way. Same as we do when we get hot, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can sit outside in 75 degrees and chill, and you got all your full energy, and you feel good. You'll get up, you'll go for a walk, you'll play some volleyball, you'll do whatever, right? Mm -hmm. If it's 105, what do you do? You hunker down in the shade, and you chill. You For try to sure. stay out of it. You don't move as much as you normally would. You don't react the same way you would. You don't eat as much as you normally would because it just doesn't feel right to you. Same as a human. So salmon are like very similar in that regard. So what do you, that's, I mean, it's a great analogy, but in, um, I'm sure you don't stop fishing once it hits 70 degrees. You don't stop fishing, but you look for those breaks or you look for deeper water. You look for things because that surface water, like when the tide's flooding in, right, like it's not flooding in like from top to bottom. So, you know, if you're fishing in 15 to 20 feet of water, it might be flooding in from top to bottom. Okay. So that temperature could be from the deck all the way up to the surface, right? That's pushing that water. Well, you slide out to 60 feet of water, well, a lot of that, that water that's, that's flooding in is probably going over the top of that underlying water. So somewhere down there, there's some tumbling water that may be cooler, right? And also, when the tides flood in like that, depending on what style of flash or what style of fishing you're doing, you can notice by depth, like when you're dropping your gear, if you're running like 45 feet and you notice your pearl troll is thumping way too fast or whatever, and then you drop it maybe another 15 feet, right? It might slow it down because that underlying current below that surface current is different than surface current flooding in. Right, and so just the change in the flasher and the change in the way the flasher is working while you're fishing, just at a different depth in the same location, could be an indicator of where you need to put your gear. Wow. Guys, listen up. Jared uh, Higginbotham in the house and he's talking salmon uh, knowledge. And so when you're targeting that, that type of a deeper area are, and you're getting, you're trying to target a Chinook in that deep of a section with maybe a different current on the top, how do you kind of present your baits properly in that type of a situation? Well, you know, it's kind of a, it's just one of those things, man. One, trust your electronics, right? Like if you have good electronics and you see that those fish are moving in that 25 to 35 foot water column, even though you're in 60 feet of water, 
fish the 25 to 30 foot water column. Mm -hmm. You know, and like me, I fish seven rods. And so my bow rods are going to be my shallowest. My rib, mid rods are going to run that mid range. And my back rods are going to be deepest. And then I have a seventh rod I fish actually behind my console that goes over the top of my motors. And that's going to be my very deepest rod, right? Because that keeps me from getting tangled. That leaves me the ability to fish all of those water columns. And so I can watch the bow rods, the mid rods, and the back rods. And um, I can see what they're all doing, right? Because ideally, if you're running a pro troll, they should all be running the same, right? They should all be thumping that same 1-1000, one, 2-1000, one 3-1000, mm -hmm. right? So if you see a couple that aren't, that's what I was talking about, about the water and the current being different at different depths. So then you can adjust that, right? And of course, if I get bit three times at 45 feet on a line counter, right? I'm going to drop other rods to 45 feet on the line counter. And I generally fish all the same weight. Like a lot of guys will fish a 20 on the bow, a 16 in the middle, 12s in the back and a, in the stern, and then a 10 out the back rod, right? I don't do that. I fish 16s on all of them, right? Because then I'm, I always know where my gear is, right? Interesting. Because that math is always the same. So then I can say, all right, you know, on my, on my port side bow, I may say 50 in the mid, 40 in the back, 30. And then on the other side, I may go, you know, um, I may go 55, 45, 35, right? And so through the water column, I'm staggered in like, I've got baits basically in 25 feet of the water column, mm -hmm. right? So I'm covering 25 feet of that water column with seven rods. Now, not everybody can fish seven rods, and so that's where I say trust your electronics. So how do you spread out seven rods, though? Well, the boat's 30 feet long. Oh, okay, so that I helps. Can, yeah, that I, helps. Think, I, I can fish it a lot different, right? And so my rods aren't five feet apart like in, in a lot of boats. My rods are probably like you know, actually seven feet apart, yeah. right? And so I have that extra little window there to where I can fish those deeper depths and those stronger currents and not really worry as much about the bow rods sinking in the middle rod, the middle rods sinking into the back rods. But you still have to be, you know, boat control is very important, right? And oh, yeah. um, understanding that. And sometimes it's just as important to, um, you know, maybe slide over. You know, if you can see that rip current, you can see those areas and you're watching your finder and you notice you're kind of running a shelf or whatever and it goes from 45 to 55 feet. Well, and you notice the current's doing some weird stuff. Well, try sliding up into 40 feet. Maybe the current will fix itself. Try sliding out into 60 feet. Maybe the current will fix itself, right? So, like I said, that the current in the Columbia, especially in the estuary where the tide's, you know, flooding and ebbing, you know, so often, it's not consistent. Yeah. And so you have to be consistent in your presentation. Understand what your gear is doing. Understand those situations when salmon are biting. And then pay attention to those and make those mental notes like, you know what, the salmon bit when I was here. Not necessarily a depth or whatever. It's what your gear was doing in mm -hmm. those depths. Yeah. And that's the most important part because, you, you know, a lot of people see people just getting torched all around them, right? Man, all these guys are getting bit, right? Well, are those guys all fishing on the deck? Are they all fishing suspended and you're fishing on the deck? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so... That's where um, that's where that difference is, right? Like, pay attention to those types of details, you know, and, and then everything from leader lengths to hook size to how much you know everything's going, uh, you know, how much how much your flasher's moving. Pay attention to if you're running a pro patrol, if you catch four fish on one rod, right, and you've got the same gear on all of them, there's something different with that flasher. Mark it. Put a mark on that thing. Know that that's your fishy flasher, right? Move it around the boat. Test your theory. Right, and then you'll start learning. You know, like, oh man, I've got three pro trolls. Fishy that are super flashers, yeah. really. That's kind of an interesting concept because you hear that all the time with like plugs and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I can't say I've heard it with flashers. Well, you know, because a lot of the times we've been running those inline flashers, like a fish flash or mm -hmm. you know triangle flashers, and really, you know, there's there's a fishy color, but there's yeah. no fishy action, right? So you're, yeah. you're fishing a triangle style flasher. It's an attractant. It's purely an mm -hmm. attractant. Inline flashers, no and drag. It's consistent. It's consistent yeah, all yeah. the time, right? The yeah. only difference in consistency may be due to the flasher manufacturer. Uh, Thicker plastic, thinner plastic, they're going to move a little bit different. One may mm -hmm. spin faster, one may spin slower. Yeah. But with a Pro Troll style flasher, man, they're a lot like a lure. They're not all the same. 
if you fish Pro Trolls for a long time in different flashers, you'll notice there's different colors of plastic under the chrome as it wears off. Well, you know, they may be made different, maybe different style of plastic. They may have, you know, XYZ components in them that aren't in other fla other flashers, or mm -hmm. the molds may not be as consistent. Maybe they have a 10 cavity mold, and so maybe cavity 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 are really good, and 7, 8, 9, and 10 aren't. Interesting. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, that's where a lot of guys used to buy like a wiggle wart or a quick fish, right? Yeah. And 1 out of 10 would work. Well, it's because those mold cavities were like maybe 5 cavities big, and cavity 1, 2 fished really good, 3 didn't, 4 fished great, and 5 fished okay. Right? But nobody knows yeah. which those come out of. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and, and we didn't either, but the technology now is much more sound. So yeah. every lure is pretty much precisely built. But For beforehand, sure. that's how that worked. And so then it's all, about our, it's all about R&D then. So which which brings me, yeah. and I hate to cut you off real you're good, quick brother, here, you're good. but I want to bring you over to something here. What um, what you've done in the, the Yakima Bay realm and with Buzz Ramsey, um, has been very, I guess, heavily into kind of the very specific R&D. So can you tell me a little bit about that? I've heard you kind of riff on the whole plug idea. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you can tell um, the Salmon Trout Steelheader audience a little bit about plug action. And before you do, I just want to uh, uh, shout out NSIA um, here at the NSIA Sport Fishing uh, Derby that we partook in. And uh, go to NSIAfishing.org, I believe it is, mm -hmm. and check them out. This episode is brought to you by NSIA. So let's get back to this, Jared. So plugs, can you tell me a little bit about action and R&D and product testing? And let's talk specifically about the Maglip. There's a bunch of great products out there. You could go on for hours about plugs. I, I guarantee sure. you, folks, and we will do that sometime, sure. but we got limited time here. So mm -hmm. tell me about the Maglip. You know, the Maglip's its own unique critter, and um, it was actually designed by, uh, the original one, the 4.5, was designed by a guy named Tom Seward before Buzz and I ever got there. And um, this lure had just so much potential, but the whole physical look of the lure itself didn't look like a banana-style plug. It didn't look like a quick fish, didn't look like a flat fish, and so it was kind of unique to get in, into the market. But when Buzz went to Yakima Bait, you know, Buzz changed packaging, changed name, changed colors, right? And it kind of took off in that 4.5 size. Well, while that took off and he was doing that marketing on that side of it, he started designing the 3.5 maglet. He finished that. That I came to Yakima directly after that, and I helped him work on every other size, right? The 5.0, the 4.0, the 3.0, the 2.5, and the 2.0. And what I learned from him is is exactly what I just said. It's that attention to detail. Now, everyone mm -hmm. out there, you're a specialist in your own field. I don't care if you're a painter. I don't care if you're a landscaper. I don't care if you're a mechanic. Um, any of those things, right? You are a specialist in your field, and why? Because you're passionate about it, and you paid attention to detail, right? And those details that make you, you know, you, that make you a specialist in those fields, are the same things like for fishing. So don't just put the lure out there and expect it to work, right? Study it, like. What what is it doing at 35 feet deep? What is it doing at this you know this speed? What is it doing when I change the treble hook on on the back? What is it doing when I wrap it? You know what I mean? Um, all those things need to be paid attention to because it's all a science. These these lures are designed, um, you know, to be balanced, which means that they're going to run straight and flat, not blow out on you and twist out. Mm -hmm. And the maglip is one of those that it runs perfect. Everyone runs perfect out of package. Those, they, that's the crazy thing about the Maglip. It does seem like the one that you never hear complaints about consistency. Ever. Ever. Whereas you'll hear like, oh man, I love this plug, but only one out of two works, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, ever, man. And that that all comes from really, really the design of the lure. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, I'm not comparing it to an airplane, but the same way you look at a 747 and go, mm -hmm. how does this thing get off the ground? Yeah, this yeah. Is, this is making sense. Or look at a, you know, a 600 foot long, iron ship why, why is an iron ship float right well it's all about that design and uh, you know the the hydrodynamics of how the water flows over that plug right is really 
how that whole thing comes together, right? And so... What you know, I find odd, and I'm just going to break in here real quick, yeah. and maybe you can talk about this, but what I find odd about the maglip is when you're drift boat fishing or, or fishing in, a, you know, a bigger river, those maglips continue to run as you kind of cross into weird little currents and stuff. And another thing about it, I, like, I... I feel like you can run them with a dropper or mm-hmm. flatline them. Sure. They work consistently. And uh, so what is it about, like, with that skip beat, how does it maintain that consistency throughout those different water areas? So, you know, the size of the bill helps that because it helps it catch a lot of water. And so it will grab and help it dive down, stay down, and move. Mm-hmm. But the resistance between the water forcing onto the bill of the plug, the size of the air chamber inside the plug, the position of the balancing weight inside the plug, the positions of the hook hangers and the pull point, and the heaviness and the weight of the hooks on each hanger. Oh wow! Right, is all part of that puzzle. So what do you what do you mean the internal weight? Well, there's a balancing weight in in, in most lures, and it's in the head of the lure. And otherwise, when you go to troll and you put it out, it would it would just sit on top of the water. It wouldn't oh, have okay. anything yeah. to help dive that nose down. Yeah. But the position of that is going to dictate the position. Is going to dictate the position of the lure as far as in the water, as far as how it starts to dive and how it starts to go up and down, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the balancing weight is what forces that lure down and keeps it stable. Similar to a a guy walking on a trapeze that long pole, right? Yeah. Take that pole away. Yep. Okay. You take that pole away, can he still do it? Probably in some situations. Mm -hmm. Can he do it all the time? No. But with that pole, right, that's what balances him out. Yeah. Right? That's what balances him out. And so it's very similar to that balancing weight in that lure as so far as what it does. It balances yeah. it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's what gives that little room for those errors for those situations that you're talking about when that plug isn't getting direct flowing current. You're getting that boiling current. That's what keeps that lure down. It helps it. Okay, that, that makes more sense because it seems like a nightmare, an engineering nightmare to figure out how to deal with hydro or hydrology. Is that the word for I it? I guess, yeah, man. I mean, yeah. I'm a redneck farm kid, but yeah, that's what Buzz was <laughs> explaining to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, for but, sure. You know, it, it does, but that's really all trial and error. There, okay. there is no, when you're designing a lure like that, man, the prototypes are $500, $1,000, $1,500 each. And so yeah, yeah. we'll take an epoxy them and, you know, grind on them with a, a Dremel tool, heat them up with a torch or whatever, bend them, move them, different hook point placements, different pull point placements, different hook sizes, test them to see um, how deep they dive, you know. And, and ideally, if you come to me tomorrow, Lucas, and you say, Jared, I, I want a flatfish style plug that'll dive 25 feet deep and run, run at six miles an hour Correct. and have the skip beat action, right? Yep. So those are your criteria you just gave me, right? Correct. I want that. Yes. Right. You want that. Everybody wants that, right? And so that's what you do, man. You get this lure and you start tinkering with it mm-hmm. until you can get it to do all those things at the same time. And that, that's a combination of all those things I just talked mm-hmm. to you about. And so sometimes it does take back, sit back and think of those things or, you know, and it's all on the water, man. I mean, mm-hmm. when we're testing them, you bring it in, you tweak it, you put it back out, you watch it, you watch it, you watch it. You bring it in, you yeah. tweak it, you put it back out, you watch it, watch it. You know, and the same thing, and, and, and back and forth, and back and forth. And you know, like Buzz and I, when we did, see, my first project with Buzz was the Magnet 5.0. Very yeah. proud of that. I still have the original five wow. at home that we tested. Right, like yeah. one of the coolest trophies I could ever have. Buzz is one of my best friends. I love that guy to death. Yeah. And um, but when we were testing that thing, we did that for like a year and a half. Right, like we went out probably 15 to 20 times on a boat and tested it. Yeah. And the day that we got it right, right, like, because we tested it, we're like, oh, it looks good, but, oh, it won't do this. Oh, it looks good, but it won't run to five miles an hour. Mm. Oh, it looks good, but there's no skip beat action. Oh, it dived way too deep, but it looks dead. Oh, it runs really good, but it won't dive, yeah. right? And so when we finally got to the point that 
we were sitting there one day, I can remember this, it's the coolest story, and we've done this for, like I said, a year and a half, and so we get, we're in Drano, and we're sitting there, and we'd, we'd work on this thing all day, it's like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, we're exhausted, it's hot, and um, you know, and we have to go to open salmon fisheries to test these. We can't just go do it anywhere. They have to be yeah, open, true. Yeah. right? And so we're sitting there, and he sits down. And we have a sandwich because Buzz always made me lunch. We had actually it was smoked spring chinook that he made into tuna sandwiches, and we sat there and we ate them. We talked, and he looks at me and goes, "Don't ever do this." And we have a fifteen hundred dollar prototype. He grabs a blowtorch, heats up this plug, and he bends it, right? And I'm like, Ooh. And he goes, "I think the bill needs more, more, more angle." And I'm like, mm -hmm. "All right." And, we, and mind you, he and I had been doing this for a year and a half, like I said. And he put we put it in the water, and we start at one mile an hour, and we're like, "Whoa." That looks fishy. We yeah. get to two miles an hour. It starts diving down. looks even fishier. We get to three miles an hour. It looks so fishy we can't stand it. And we finally get to that five miles an hour, and it's going fishy. And he and I are jumping up and down the boat like kids, right? Like, we're so excited. Dude. Like, yeah. this is the freaking coolest thing ever. We got it. We nailed it, right? Yeah. And so... That, but that's what it took. It wasn't yeah. just like we went out and did it, man. So oh man, that's this is part. this is so epic. Unfortunately, we got to bail because we got the festivities starting, and uh, I'm sure Jared will be called up for the giantest fish. No, you know. no, we'll see what happens here. But um, Jared, thank you so much. Anytime, we got to get together when I can interview you for you know just a short podcast, maybe sure. six to twelve hours. Yeah, we'll and do that, uh, just got, talk salmon. I can talk so. for days. All right, I know you can. And I love listening. So hey, everybody, check out Yakima Bay and anything you can find on Jared Higginbotham. He is on our Salmon Trout Steel Editor channel. Thank you so much. Jared. Thanks.